a Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this special mini-series, I'm delving deeper into one of the most desirable markets in the world for Aussie business, China. With such a large population and a booming economy to boot, China can present a goldmine of opportunities for business owners. But I know from experience that the landscape can be tricky to navigate. So, across these next five episodes, I'll speak to a business owner who has succeeded in China and an expert to find out the biggest challenges Aussies face when trying to make it in the so-called Middle Kingdom and, most importantly, how to overcome them. On my first ever visit to China, I had only been to Chinatown before then, I seemed to see sprinklings of Australia on every part of my journey. Even before I reached the mainland on the Dragon Air flight between Hong Kong and Shanghai, the breakfast served included jars of jam made by Berenberg, a small family-owned company based in Handorf in the Adelaide Hills. And when I arrived in Shanghai and caught the taxi, the driver, after finding out that I was Australian, pointed to the Australian-made GPS technology panel, which was used for all his computer bookings. This is made in Australia. All taxis in Shanghai have these, he announced proudly. And then to top it all off, I was told that the major attraction at the Beijing Zoo is Wally the Wombat. I've now been to China two to three times since that first visit, and I now see sprinklings of Australia, not just in Shanghai and Beijing, but all over China in the second and third tier cities, like Chengdu and Qingdao. There are now over 10,000 Australian companies exporting to China, 90% are small and medium, and 3,000 have a base there mainly on the back of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, or CHAFTA. If I saw Wally the Wombat in the Beijing Zoo back then, I now can visit Chinese pandas, Wang Wang and Fu Ni, in the zoo in my hometown of Adelaide. That's a pretty fair exchange, I'd say, but not officially part of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. So now let's find out how the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, or CHAFTA, can assist with your entry into China. Pam Brook is the co-founder of Australia's leading producer of macadamia products, Brook Farm, and her cereal products are changing the way China does breakfast. Pam, welcome to the show. Oh, lovely to be here with you, Tim, today. Now, tell us the story of Brook Farm. It was sort of one dentist in a couple coming together with another, and how did it all start? Well, it was actually a dentist and a film producer, Martin <laughs> and I, and um, we actually met in the chair in London. That's how we met. I think, not sure if that's a Hippocratic oath breaker or... Was that a dentist chair or a movie director's chair? A dentist chair. Oh, well done. <laughs> but anyway, um, I imported Martin to Australia and um, we lived in Melbourne for a long time. And then through uh, a quirk of fate, we ended up buying a rundown dairy farm just in the hinterland of Byron Bay. And we thought, what, what will we plant? We got a weeds notice from the council and someone said, well, you should plant trees and we thought macadamias are in at the time. So this is 89, so quite a long time ago. And anyway, we planted macadamias, but then in 1990 came the recession that we had to have where interest rates went to 25%. So we couldn't afford to move up to, to live on the farm. So for 10 years, we commuted five times a year, watched the trees grow 
and watched the industry and we saw that what they were doing was they were putting macadamias into cardboard boxes, sending them overseas for other people to do clever things with, but there was no value adding in Australia. And so those 10 years actually gave us a thought well, why don't we do value-adding, you know? We've got such skills. I'm a dentist, he's a film producer, we're going into the food industry, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so <laughs> that's how we started. And, and we moved to live up here in November, or in January 99, and in November 2000 at the Bangalore Markets with us and the child labour, our two sons, we launched a Brook Farm with two macadamia mueslis and our beautiful infused macadamia oils. So that was in November 2000, and today we have a range of 27 products, probably about 65 different uh, sold items, and we employ about 75 people and export to about 12 countries around the world. So there's a big fill-in between, you know, November 2000 and, uh, and today, but it's been an exciting journey, and like everyone, we've learnt on the job. Now, how long was it before you decided to go global and sort of go go overseas? Well, one of the things we did from very early on was always network and talk to other people in the food industry. And so from day one, we thought about managing risk, even when we were just at the Bangalore markets. And we always set a goal from day one that 50% of our business would be export. And that's always been the same goal. We still haven't quite got to 50%. We just recently reset the goal to 60% and we hope to get there in the next three or four years. So you're almost a born global or or certainly yeah. started early in your business? Definitely. We've always, I mean, Martin and I um, have always travelled and you look at the food industry in so many other countries and we produce such beautiful products in Australia and for us what we were doing was quite special. The macadamia was native to the northern rivers of New South Wales and southern Queensland. So for us, taking our product to the world was a great story. And the macadamia industry, let's not forget, had already been exporting. So we came into an industry where exporting was the norm, but uh, in value-adding in Australia, uh, that's what we wanted to also make the norm as well. And how many markets are you in? What sort of places? Oh, so we're in uh, the USA, we're in Japan, we're in New Zealand, we're in China, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, South Korea, many places. Fiji over in um, Mauritius and places like that. So for us... um, Anywhere that um, we think there's a market opportunity, uh, we would go to if we think it's a good market opportunity. Almost the whole Indo-Pacific? Almost the whole Indo-Pacific. And I always we, we always said if we reflected back on export, where should you export to? And part of it is the opportunity, but you should also export to countries you want to visit. Ah, I think that's, that's a good important opportunity. too. <laughs> that's my philosophy too, yeah. <laughs> um, the, one of those that you mentioned, nearly all of them have got a free trade agreement. Is that is that a factor when you choose a, a market? I think it's a huge help if there's a free trade agreement. For a start, uh, the two governments have already been working together and iron, working on ironing out import challenges. Uh, but free trade agreements really help eliminate tariffs, which really makes your product affordable in those markets. And you can get uh, in contact with more government assistance around uh, your products going into those markets too. 
So it's it's sort of like that. I think it's eliminating one step. If there's a free trade agreement, it's it's a natural first tick to uh, to explore that market. Now China's a pretty big place, quite overwhelming for some people. Why did you choose China as one of your markets? Well, I think first of all. China in a little way chose us because we'd always exhibited at uh, the Fine Food Show in Australia, which I would encourage all small producers to do because that's where you meet people who want to take your products to other countries. And we'd always been approached a lot by different people from China, but we didn't really understand the right way in. It was finally after two or three years of approaches, we found the right distributor importer or the right importer that we felt we could build a trusting relationship with that we felt comfortable with and we felt they really understood our brand and our vision and how it works in Australia and how that might translate to work really well in China. Have you made any mistakes or have there been any particular obstacles that you've had to overcome to crack it in China? Oh, we make lots of mistakes, I think. Really? It's how you, how you, you recover can. from the mistakes, oh, yes. Almost. I, I think you learn more by your mistakes sometimes than anything else because sometimes you let you just bypass your successes quickly, but you learn a lot from your mistakes. They might be small and no one might ever find out about them, but um, you learn a lot. I think for us, one of the biggest challenges has been with China really understanding the marketplace. I think in a new export market, you need to go and visit. And culturally, China is so different to Australia. And so the times that we visited there, we really start to under understand and learn how to work with that market. Also, you really recognise that you really need to speak the language or you need someone who's on your side, your own translator, who will take you in there. Uh, and you also need to work out the distribution system and how that works, because there's so many small distributors in China that work on, or sub-distributors that work under main distributors. It's it's understanding that, that roadmap, because it's quite different to what happens in Australia. So I think understanding, visiting the country, understanding, and making sure you really learn about it firsthand is a really important thing at some stage. And then making sure that your products culturally fit. I mean, one of the big things for us in China is, you know, people don't really eat... Breakfast is very different to the breakfast that Brook Farm makes. So it's more congee. More congee, a lot of warm things, porridges and things like that. So, but it's becoming very on trend with the younger people and particularly the daigu shopper in Australia to send our mueslis and granolas back to China. So it's how do we tell the story of how to eat our products? How do we connect it with tradition, but also engage with uh, the new millennials in China as well? So they might want to eat it the way we do, but there's another way of eating it with warm milk that would also work if you're looking at more traditional ways of eating. Well, my kids are Chinese, so we mix uh, breakfasts between Brook Farm muesli, bacon egg rolls and congee, depending on oh, what day it is. Oh, how delicious. So we, we, we get the best of both worlds. <laughs> now, Australia's very proud of, you know, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, chapter that China's very proud of. Has, has the Free Trade Agreement helped you? I think the Free Trade Agreement's helped us a lot. I mean, our uh, tariffs have gone from our products, some of them from 20%, right down to zero now. So that makes it really a complete difference to affordability in the market, particularly to the Chinese consumer. 
And that's really also the as the tariffs have come down, if we've had uh, in- ingredients that have gone up in cost, we've been able to balance our pricing in China and make sure that we keep our product affordable, but also we're producing it in a way that creates profit that we can invest in the business and continue to grow our business in China. Do you think you would have gone to China anyway, even if there hadn't been a free trade agreement? I think it... Um, Possibly, but it would have been much harder. Mm, so it really yeah, helped. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, no, the the tariff reduction has made a huge difference to our affordability in, in China. That's that's really made a big difference to us. Austrade's been really helpful uh, in helping us work through the uh, the China Free Trade Agreement as well. Because it can be quite complex at first, but it's just a case of reaching out to the right people and getting the appropriate advice. That's that's really helped. Fantastic. Well, a great family company story. Pam, thanks very much for being on the Airport Economist. Oh, lovely to talk to you today, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. We've heard from the business. Now let's speak with the expert. Michael Clifton from the Australia-China Business Council joins us now. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Tim. Well, tell me, how important is the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, or CHAFTA? Look, Tim, CHAFTA has been a critical piece in the path of the Australian economy driving towards success with China. So if I use wine, just as a very simple example, when I got to China, when I arrived in China in 2011, Australia was exporting around $200 million worth of wine to China. As a direct result of the tariff reductions courtesy of CHAFTA, the Australian wine industry is now exporting over $1 billion worth of wine. So in the space of just five or six years, on the back of the opportunities opened up by CHAFTA, we're seeing wine go from 200 to 1 billion. And that story is repeated across a range of sectors, whether it's beef, whether it's dairy, whether it's any product you care to name. It's been a very, very good thing for the Australian economy. So it's not just for Rio Tinto or BHP, it's for the small businesses out there looking to go to China. Absolutely. There would be farmers, dairy farmers, beef farmers, wine growers, table grape farmers, Across the range of Australian agriculture, across um, healthcare in terms of vitamin supplements, companies like Swiss and Blackmores all have achieved staggering success, not exclusively due to CHAFTA, but by and large CHAFTA and the tariff reductions have made their products more cost competitive. And perhaps most importantly, um, what we call the head-turning effect of the free trade agreement has focused the eyes and ears of Australian business on exactly what the opportunity is in China and encouraged Australian companies, large and small, to engage with China in a far more uh, meaningful way. Now, you mentioned the head-turning effect. What do you mean by that? Well, Tim, I, I could rattle around the you know, chafter and kafter and japa, and that would be meaningless to most Australians. But Back in 2014, then-Trade Minister Andrew Robb concluded three important trade agreements, one with Japan, one with Korea, and one with China. And the aggregate effect of those three agreements was that the Australian media and the Australian people focused on Northeast Asia and the business opportunities flowing from the government's ability to successfully 
conclude three very important trading agreements with three of our principal economic partners. So head-turning effect is uh, simply referring to companies who were, until that point, not really focused on, not really exercised by the opportunities available to them in Northeast Asia. But signing three agreements in quick succession, that really got people's attention, hence the head-turning effect. Now, there's about 10,000 Australian companies going to China or, or through Hong Kong. Do you think they could do it without a free trade agreement? Obviously, Australia was doing good business with China in the lead-up to entry into force of Chafta in December of 2015. Business was happening. But courtesy of the head-turning effect, courtesy of Chafta making Australian products more cost-competitive relative to our competition in Europe and the Americas, uh, the opportunities have expanded. So, yes, they can. We were doing business before Chafta. We're doing better business after Chafta. Now, the free trade agreement with China was a real marathon, not a sprint, particularly for our dear trade negotiators. Why did it come about? What was the motivation for it? Look, it took 10 years of negotiation between the various parties. And, I, you know, from memory, they had upwards of 20 rounds of negotiation. And it was, you know, it was hard going. But eventually, both teams of negotiators clearly got to the point where they felt they could extract what the Chinese like to call a win-win. Shuangying, uh, that, that win-win result where Chinese consumers won, Australian business and Australian consumers won. So both parties were able to get to an agreement where they both felt comfortable that both sides were winning. And it took 10 years, Tim, to get to that point. A lot of blood, sweat and tears along the way, but it's been a great outcome for Australian business. Do you think the FCA was very important to China-Australia diplomatic relations as much as a, an instrument to help small business? Look, the, the fact that the then incoming government was able to conclude those three signature free trade agreements in a very, relatively short space of time. So we had the economic partnership agreement with Japan, we had the free trade agreement with Korea and the free trade agreement with China, put Australian business in Northeast Asia in a sweet spot, okay? Uh, and the willingness of China to enter into that agreement uh did reflect the fact that diplomatically we were in a good space with China. And from 2011 right through until 2016, um, that diplomatic relationship was reflected in a vibrant, robust economic relationship. Now, clearly, the diplomatic relationship has been going through, um, let's just call it difficult times over the past 18 months to two years. But there has been little evidence, little to no evidence of the diplomatic stresses having any impact on the appetite for Chinese consumers to continue buying Australian goods and services. Now, you ran China for Austrade, the Australian Trade Commission, for, for six years. Yep. How did things change for small business in that time? Look, Tim, I, I, was, I consider myself very fortunate in that I... I I think it's fair to say I lived through that sweet spot I referred to earlier. So I arrived December 11. I left towards the end of 2016. I returned again last year for about six months. But during that initial five-year period, that's when Chafta came into force and we saw that head-turning effect. We saw the willingness of Australian companies, large and small, to engage with China peak. And the trading relationship just went from strength to strength. 
Um, if I could use an example, a simple example, you, you may have heard of the Australia Week in China initiative. In 2014, uh, in the, we had around five to 600 companies leave Australia to participate in a large business delegation to China. Two years later, after Chafter and the head-turning effect that I keep referring to, we had an, another Australia Week in China in 2016. We had over 1,000 companies and we were deluged with interest. And that is reflective of the sentiment of Australian business and the fact that they were increasingly recognising the opportunities on offer in China. Now, we hear a lot about rocks and crops, you know, agriculture yep. and mining. How do you think the FTA would help other sectors and SMEs outside those two big ones of mining and agriculture? Look, I'm, I'm going to go to um, what I call the the basics that really underpin SMEs in Australia. And I'm, I'm going to talk about consumer products, agricultural products. So Chafta has made Australian products like wine, beef, dairy, cheese, seafood, um, vitamins, supplements, far more cost competitive to, us, to Chinese consumers. And I'd like to touch on Chinese consumers in a separate response, Tim, but um, we have seen any number of small Australian companies grow on the back of the opportunities that have been opened up to them in China. The common brand names that people will be aware of are Swiss Vitamin Range, the, uh, the Blackmores Range. Their sales into China over the past five to six years have gone through the roof, partly due to Chafter and partly due to their decision, management decisions to focus increased effort on the China market and commit resources to growing their business in that country. Now, you mentioned the importance of the Chinese consumer. How has that evolved? Politicians and commentators and analysts will often refer in a seemingly offhand way to the emerging middle class in Asia. And they, they rattle off some staggering numbers. The point that I'd like to impress upon people is, irrespective of how you define middle class in terms of income level and spending patterns, in China every year, anywhere between 5 million, 10 million, 15 million consumers enter an income bracket whereby they are able to afford to buy the very things that Australia is selling. So whether it's wine, beef, dairy, whether it's a tourist experience in Australia, whether it's sending their child to university here in Sydney, all those things are becoming within easy reach of millions and millions more Chinese each and every year. That is a, an amazing opportunity for Australian business. Now, there'd be small businesses in Australia who wouldn't have gone to Chinatown, let alone China. Yep. How would the Australia-China Business Council help small businesses going to China? What, what help's available for them? I, I think it's very important for companies to understand that there's a whole um, ecosystem of support out there for Australian companies wanting to embark on the journey towards China. So whether it's through the Australian Trade Commission and their network of 10 offices around China, 12 offices around Greater China, if you include Taiwan and Hong Kong, um, each of the state governments have significant representation uh, in China, be it in Shanghai, Beijing or Chengdu or indeed Guangzhou. So whether you're in Queensland, Victoria, Western Australia, uh, New South Wales, your state governments have people on the ground 
in China who are there to support small business. States like um, South Australia and Tasmania have representatives within the Austrade network. And then on the ground in China, in addition to government, you have the Australian Chambers of Commerce, which have significant operations in Shanghai, Guangzhou and Beijing, and a smaller office in um, Chengdu. So engaging with Australian companies on the ground in China is a really useful way of networking and getting practical advice on how to do business in those markets. So Australian Chambers of Commerce on the ground in China and the Australia-China Business Council in all the states and territories in Australia is there to support and inform Australian business to help them on the road towards success in China. What would be your ultimate tip for a small business looking at China to take the plunge? I think it's important for Australians to understand that the Chinese are no less ambitious for the futures of their families and their children than we are for ours. They want the same things, Tim. They want clean, safe food. They want to live in a nice, comfortable environment. They want to travel. They want quality health care. They want the opportunity to have a good education. So all the things that Australia offers by way of services, by way of goods, are in demand from an emerging and powerful middle-class consumer in China. Don't be scared. Engage. Michael Clifton, Australia-China Business Council. Thanks for being on the Airport Economist. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm the Airport Economist.